Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on the issues driving the public conversation. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gornowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Tim Bale, a professor of politics at Queen Mary University at London and author of several books on British and European party politics that have made him one of Britain's foremost experts on contemporary politics. He's also the author of the new book, The Conservative Party After Brexit, Turmoil and Transformation, which makes the case that the referendum and its outcome have transformed one of the world's oldest and most successful political parties into something different. I'm grateful to speak with him about the book, including the various intellectual and political trends that it documents. Tim, Thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Thanks very much. Great to be here. I want to start at the beginning. The question of Britain's place in Europe has been the source of debate for a long time. Euroscepticism has found expression on both the left and the right. I think, for instance, of left-wing voices like Tony Benn were as vociferous as any conservatives on the subject. What happened? How and when did Euroscepticism come to manifest itself disproportionately on the British right? Well, I mean, it's an interesting one. It was a Conservative government that took Britain into what became the European Union back in the early 1970s. Um, But sometimes people forget that actually there was quite a lot of opposition on the part of Conservative politicians uh, to that way back when. And although the Conservative politicians who campaigned against it in the 1970s were on the fringes of the party, they never really went away. Mm. And when Margaret Thatcher came along, she became leader in 1975, she adopted a rather more, if you like, robust, and some would say Eurosceptic attitude than her predecessor, Ted Heath, who'd been the prime minister who'd taken us into Europe. And gradually over time, she became more and more, I guess, sceptical about the uh, value of Britain's relationship with the EU. And by the time she left Downing Street, she was defenestrated by her own party. Uh, She'd become almost hostile, I think, to the organisation. And once she'd left office, um, she became, if you like, more and more hostile and more and more vocal about that hostility campaigning in the end for a referendum. Now, that campaign never really went anywhere in terms of persuading her successor, John Major, to to hold a referendum. But it influenced an awful lot of Conservative MPs who were very, very loyal to Margaret Thatcher. And I think when you combine that with a, a disaster for the government in 1992, which was Britain falling out of something called the exchange rate mechanism, I don't think we need to go into the details, but that was a Uh, a scarring moment for many Conservative MPs who felt that it was a proof positive, if you like, of Europe's detrimental impact on on, uh, the UK. And from then on, really, when the Conservatives went into opposition in 1997, 
um, anti-Europeanism became something of a shibboleth um, for many conservatives, particularly on the right of the Conservative Party. Uh, and it kind of united, if you like, a, a sovereignist critique of uh, Britain's role in the European Union on the one hand, and on the other, this belief that um, the European Union was holding the British economy back, that, that somehow uh, it was a kind of corporatist creation. It was stopping Britain uh, fulfilling, if you like, its destiny as a global trader. And putting those two things together, I think, was quite a powerful recipe for Euroscepticism within the Conservative Party. Let me ask you to lay out the book's principal argument. What was the British Conservative Party like before Brexit? And what has it become? And what's the causal relationship to Brexit in your mind? Well, I mean, I think the Conservative Party has always flirted with populism and nationalism, like many Conservative parties. But I think what has happened with Brexit, not only you know the result of the referendum, but the lead up to the referendum, is that it has transformed the Conservative Party from, a, I think, a fairly conventional mainstream centre-right party that maybe flirted with populism and nationalism, to what I call in the book a kind of ersatz radical right populist party. In other words, uh, a party that looks a little bit more like the UK Independence Party, which was the party on the fringe of the Conservative Party that pushed David Cameron into holding the referendum uh, in the first place, and rather like the kind of radical right-wing populist parties that we see in um, continental Europe, you know, the, the kind of party um, that actually gains quite a lot of votes in Scandinavia and people may be familiar with it in France, may be familiar now with the AFD in Germany, which tend to campaign on a, a fairly xenophobic, certainly anti-immigrant platform. And also, and this is the key to populism, tend to talk about the people being betrayed by some kind of liberal elite, not only when it comes to, to immigration, but also on what they refer to as kind of woke politics, this idea that there is some kind of chattering class, if you like, that has won the culture war and is driving our societies towards a kind of multicultural, liberal, progressive future that actually doesn't reflect what they believe are the, the interests and the inclination of the, of the vast majority. I want to spend some time understanding that transformation and, and its different dynamics. British politics, like American and Canadian politics, has undergone something of a realignment rooted in large part in educational polarization. The breaching of the so-called Red Wall in 2019 is part of that story. How much of the changes in the character of conservative politics are a reflection of these changes to the party's own voting coalition? Yeah, I mean, I think that is a really good question. I mean, there is a, always a question in my mind, and I think many other observers' minds, as to how much conservative politicians who spout this kind of populist rhetoric actually truly believe in it and how much it is actually driven simply by electoral rationality, if you like. It is very clear that there has been a realignment, although whether it is as permanent, perhaps, and, and as large as some people suggest is, a, is another matter. But what we've seen is um, a concern on the part of many working class voters about the kind of cultural agenda 
um, that uh, the Labour Party and the Liberal Party and kind of progressive parties on on the the, the left of politics uh, are running uh, an alienation um, uh, on their part from that kind of politics, and often that is reflected in particular in age differences in uh, voting as well as class differences and also educational differences as I think you just suggested. So it's very clear that voters who left school at 16, which used to be the school leaving age, uh, and who never went to university, uh, voters who are certainly in their sort of 60s and above, um, have those cultural concerns about Labour, about the Liberals, about Greens, uh, for example, have cultural concerns about immigration and the way that that's changed British society. And that has led them to uh, voting in greater numbers than used to be the case, I think, for the Conservative Party. Now, I think the Conservative Party has always had a lock on elderly voters, or at least it has for, you know, 20, 30 years. But the, the realignment we've really seen is is the extent to which working class voters and, and people with you know less education have flipped over to the Conservative Party. Now, the, the, the key issue is whether that, as I say, is a permanent shift or whether it, it is temporary. It could well be now that economic issues are to some extent higher in the mix than perhaps they used to be, will mean that actually that realignment in the end was more superficial than perhaps some on the right in particular argued. But certainly in terms of winning the election in 2019, for example, the post-Brexit election, and certainly in terms of actually leave winning the referendum in 2016, that realignment, in as much as it was a realignment, was very important. You also attribute a significant role to the party's interrelationship with the media. What's the role of British right-wing media in pushing the Conservative Party in this new ideological direction? Yeah, I mean, the print media in this country has always been highly partisan. We've always had newspapers that have been strong supporters of uh, the Labour Party and newspapers that have been strong supporters of the Conservative Party. It has to be said there are far more that are strong supporters of the Conservatives than support Labour. I argue in the book, and I've argued this for some time, that actually we shouldn't really see the Conservative supporting press as, if you like, external to the Conservative Party. I call it the party in the media because I believe actually the proprietors, the editors, the columnists who work for those newspapers are in some ways an integral part, if not a formal part, of the, the Conservative Party itself in as much as they have a great deal of influence on the way that Conservative MPs in particular think about issues in the way that they are able to put pressure on Conservative politicians and Prime Ministers, in the way that they are certainly very much part of, if you like, the filter bubble in which Conservative grassroots members uh, live and breathe, and in as much as they still continue to have some influence, I think, although it can be overstated, on voters. I don't think that influence is particularly direct. I'm not saying that, you know, somebody would read an editorial the day before the election and, and be persuaded by it to vote Conservative. But the kind of drip, 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 you know, erosion effect that uh, those papers have is important, as is actually their ability to set the agenda for um, public broadcasters who are, you know, by statute supposed to be balanced in their coverage. 
but often do take you know their their prioritization of stories direct from the the print media which means that obviously to some extent uh, even public broadcasters product is going to be slightly skewed perhaps towards uh, the right than than the left so i think if you look for example at brexit the the pressure that was put on david cameron by conservative supporting newspapers to call that referendum and then the way that those conservative newspapers actually without exception really came out swinging for brexit during the referendum I think shows the the power that they had within the the party, uh, and then after that, it's very very clear. If you look at what happened between 2016 and 2019, they were very hopeful that Theresa May would be able to get them the kind of Brexit they wanted, which was very much you know complete separation from the European Union. And once it became evident that actually she wasn't going to do that, partly because she was worried about the Northern Ireland situation. Partly because uh, I think, you know, many of her closest colleagues worried that complete separation would be economically very damaging for for the UK. They quickly switched to actually, you know, opposing her withdrawal agreement with the EU and trying to replace her in the end successfully with um, somebody who would do what they wanted, Boris Johnson. So I think, you know, the, the relationship with the, the, the media that the Conservative Party has is, is highly influential. And some people would, would argue actually dysfunctional in the sense that Conservative politicians attach far more weight to the print media than perhaps given its influence or, you know, its, its, its lack of direct influence on the electorate, they, they should. I want to ask you about caucus dynamics. You refer in the book to the creation of various issue-specific caucus groups that have sought to influence the party in a mostly right-wing direction. As a Canadian reader, I must say that I'm envious, not necessarily because I like the various caucus groups and what they stand for, but rather because they reflect the room for dissent and entrepreneurship within your parliamentary system. How much is the story here one of trade-offs between a stable yet unresponsive politics and a messy yet arguably more responsive one? Well, that is a great question. I mean, there is always this dilemma, if you like, this contradiction between what is responsible and what is responsive in in politics. And I think, you know, you can go back to kind of cliched representations of British political parties as coalitions. You know, we we live with this first-past-the-post system that to some extent um, forces politicians who, you know, in a PR system might be in different parties um, together. Uh, I think, you know, the Conservative Party has, to some extent, I think, for most of its life, been relatively free from the kind of really hard factionalism that we've seen in the Labour Party. It's always been, or at least traditionally been, difficult to say, you know, there is a definite organised right and and left of the Conservative Party in the way that you could say the same of of the Labour Party. Um, But increasingly what we've seen, and it's always been the case to some extent in the Conservative Party, is the formation of these groups within the Conservative Parliamentary Party, what you might call ginger groups. In other words, groups of MPs who on a single issue very often uh, feel that they have a great deal in common and and are prepared to go into bat sometimes against their leaders uh, in order to get what they want on that particular issue. What you saw, I think, with the Brexit referendum and then actually during COVID uh, as well, 
was these groups begin to take far greater importance, partly because they became more organised. I think, you know, traditionally they were always fairly informal, these, these groups within the parliamentary party. But particularly over Brexit, you got a bunch of people who organised themselves into something called the European Research Group. They didn't do a great deal of research, but what they did was an awful lot of um, uh, organising and indeed, you know, had their own kind of whipping operation to defeat Theresa May's um, plans for a withdrawal agreement from the European Union. They really became, you know, to, to use the cliche, a party within a party in some ways. You know, they were absolutely determined that her withdrawal agreement wasn't going to get through. They managed actually to destroy that withdrawal agreement and destroy her premiership. And in the end, they were, if you like, the shock troops for Boris Johnson's entry into, into the premiership. And then likewise, when we come into the COVID era, we get a bunch of people, often actually some of the same people who were active in the ERG, forming something called the COVID Recovery Group, which was all about trying to push Boris Johnson um, successfully, uh, it has to be said in, in, in many ways, to ease the, the lockdowns that we had, either to, to make them shorter than perhaps they needed to be or delay them more than they should have been um, delayed on the grounds that, you know, they were interfering with the economy. Uh, we needed to get, you know, back on our feet. The, the market needed to uh, become preeminent rather than the government, you know, giving um, public money away. Uh, and once again, you know, that group, like the ERG, had a great deal of backing uh, from the party and the media. And, and to go back to what we were discussing before, there was this alliance, if you like, between you know a right-wing party and the media, which both on Brexit and indeed on, on COVID, was seeking to, to push prime ministers in, in their direction. So there was this, what some would say, a kind of unholy alliance, if you like, between the, you know, what used to be called Fleet Street in this country, the, the, the print media, and certain Conservative MPs. Now, obviously, that group was immensely powerful, the ERG, partly because Theresa May lost her minority, her majority when she called an election in 2017. And after Boris Johnson won big in, in 2019, I think, you know, you can see that those groups have, to some extent, lost their their mojo uh, a little bit. But I think, you know, going forward, they really do represent, you know, an opportunity, I think, for any MP who, you know, wants to campaign against their leadership on a particular issue. You know, they provide a model for what can be done extremely disruptive, you know, and, you know, very much counter to the kind of iron discipline that most caucuses in, in many other Commonwealth countries, Canada perhaps included, obviously Australia and New Zealand, you know, typically are, are used to. Hey, Hub Podcast listener, you're just one click away from getting access to all of the Hub's best content. Visit www.thehub.ca for our original journalism, commentary, wine reviews, poetry. We've got it all. The thinking person's one-stop destination for news and information is www.thehub.ca. While you're there, sign up for our complimentary Hub membership. You'll get delivered to your inbox each and every Saturday a compilation of our best writing from the previous week. Again, free for you right now at www.thehub.ca. I have to ask about the extent to which changes in the Conservative Party should be viewed as something of a dialogue with left-wing politics in your country. Uh, th there's evidence, for instance, here in North America 
that conservatives actually moved less to their right flank than progressives in the opposite direction. And the polarization of the two should be understood as something of a cause and effect. How much does that analysis apply to Britain, where we've seen in the Corbyn-led Labour Party a shift to the left, of course, and under its new leadership, something of a reversion to the center left? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right to use the C word, Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, I think he did make a very big difference to obviously the Labour Party for a time and to some extent the fears that many Conservatives had about you know, the way that Labour might take the country should it um, win a general election. I think uh, obviously Jeremy Corbyn was not only a left winger, but he was also very much a kind of social liberal. And, um, you know, it was the whole package in some way, a kind of left libertarian, if you like, someone more associated, generally speaking, with kind of, you know, really socialist left parties and, and any green politics. And, and I think there is an extent to which what happened in the Conservative Party was a, a reaction to that. Now, whether it was a reaction in the sense of being genuinely scared about what might happen or whether it was a reaction in the sense of realising that Corbyn's politics was going to put a lot of normal Labour voters off and therefore make them available to the Conservative Party, I think is is the big question. I think I would tend to uh, suggest that actually it was the latter rather than the former. I don't think many Conservatives genuinely felt that they were really in danger of losing to Jeremy Corbyn, but they were very well aware that he was putting off uh, a number of voters who uh, they thought they could then bring into the Conservative Electoral Coalition. And indeed, that is exactly what happened. Uh, in some ways, the story of the 2019 election is, is partly about Brexit. It's partly about Boris Johnson. But it is also a great deal about Jeremy Corbyn uh, and, and the fact that he put off a, a lot of voters who might otherwise have been expected to to vote for Labour in, in 2019. So, uh, I mean, I think, you, you know, you're right to raise that. I think you're right to raise the 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 spectre, if you like, of, of kind of extreme woke politics um, for many Conservatives and, and, in fact, many, you know, ordinary voters. I, I do think that has made a difference. And it's presented an opportunity, obviously, on, on the Conservative side uh, for running this kind of anti-woke uh, agenda, which clearly helps them mobilize their base and, and perhaps reach beyond it. Key idea in the book is that conservatism is supposed to be incremental and prudent as a matter of disposition. And yet the British conservatives have become almost radical or revolutionary. This tension has been running through Anglo-American conservatism for the past several years. There is a sense in some conservative circles that so-called preservationist thinking is insufficient to meet the moment, that something more reconstructionist is necessary in light of changes in major institutions and the culture as a whole. Talk about this tension inherent to modern conservatism and how it's played out within British conservatism. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right to suggest that in some ways that radicalism that we've seen from the Conservative Party is reconstructionist in the sense that there is a belief that, you know, we have had decades worth of what they would consider kind of mushy, centrist and even kind of social democratic uh, politics. And that needs to be uh, wound back. And in some ways, Brexit was part of that. It was in some senses not a kind of leap in the dark as far as they were concerned, but a return to uh, what always should have been, in other words, Britain, uh, the UK, as a, an independent, you know, trading nation state, 
uh, free from what they consider to be the kind of corpse of the, of the European Union. In other words, putting right what had gone wrong in 1973 uh, when we, we joined. Uh, and I think on the cultural front, although it's not quite as strong, I think, as it is in North America, particularly in the USA, there is a feeling that, you know, the, the Liberals have had it, you know, too easy for too long, uh, that they've won many of the the, the so-called culture wars. Um, you know, we have same-sex marriage, for example, although that's, to be honest, not disputed now by many Conservatives. But, you know, it's, it's emblematic, if you like, of a whole set of cultural changes that, that are uncomfortable to some. And in a way, uh, what we're seeing is an attempt on, on the part of some Conservatives, at least, to uh, push back against that. Uh, we've seen, you know, talking of groups within the Conservative Party, this launch of a kind of new conservatism um, group on the back of something also called the Common Sense Group. There are so many of these groups now within the Parliamentary Party, it's hard to keep up. And they are very much about trying to, if you like, you know, launch and and win that 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 culture war. And so I, I think it's it, it's an element within British politics and in in the Conservative Party, but I don't think it's anything like as strong as it is in in the USA. And I think the difference there is it's secular for the most part in, in, in the UK. Now, some of those Conservatives in this so-called you know common sense group are motivated by a kind of evangelical Christianity, but that is so small a part of British society in general that it's really not going to light many voters' fires, uh, to be honest. Whereas, obviously, in the United States, you know, with evangelical Christianity being so important, you know, there is a lot more potential there for that kind of politics. I have to ask about Boris Johnson, who on one hand seems like an extraordinarily talented politician, and yet on the other hand, a fundamentally undisciplined person and political leader, what were his strengths and weaknesses and what is his political legacy in your mind? Well, I mean, his strengths clearly is his ability to appeal to a whole bunch of voters who wouldn't ordinarily, I think, have voted for the Conservatives, partly because he has this kind of larger than life personality, which he very much you know, curates and, and cultivates. It's not necessarily the real Boris Johnson. But, you know, he becomes someone partly through his work on television before he became a serious politician, if you like, you know, which allows him to appear as as this sort of bloke that people would like to have a pint with, you know, down the pub and, and allows him to present himself as a kind of outsider to the political system. You know, the ideal populist leader in some ways, you know, a, a man of the people, supposedly, even though he has a very kind of elite education and elite background. And someone who is prepared to kind of say it like it is, think the unthinkable and, and stick it to the man. And, and I think obviously as a campaigner, his talents you know, have to be recognised. It's interesting when you look at the Brexit referendum in which he played a very important part and you look at the 2019 election in which he led the Conservative Party, he's actually capable of being very, very disciplined on the campaign trail you know, really um, conveying the messages that his advisors wanted to convey again and again and again and again in all sorts of different ways uh, and very successfully. 
The problem, obviously, for Boris Johnson is that, you know, as a chief executive, completely hopeless, um, <laughs> can't manage people, can't make decisions, really kind of listens to the last person he spoke to, you know, and what's coming out of the COVID inquiry that's currently going on in the UK at the moment, I think, you know, confirms all people's worst fears uh, about him that, you know, he simply, you know, is incapable of taking governing seriously. So, I mean, he was the man in some senses to pull the Conservative Party out of this nosedive that it went into, you know, in the, in the three years after the, the referendum. And he was the man very much to, you know, help weld that kind of election winning coalition together in 2019. Um, but really, as many of those around him recognised, you know, he was completely unsuited to, to being prime minister, uh, and especially, obviously, at the time of the pandemic. Uh, so, I mean, his 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 behaviour, you know, with regard to Partygate, for example, you know, the way that um, he then clearly, you know, tried to mislead people about what had gone on in Downing Street during that time, uh, I think did change people's opinion about him. Even people who liked Boris Johnson before felt that he'd let them down very, very badly. And the the, the way that his premiership, I, I think, collapsed in, in chaos, I think, has changed people's perceptions of him. So as far as his legacy goes, I mean, I think he will be seen as the man who, you know, delivered Brexit, if you like. But he will also be seen as the man who, you know, let the country down at, you know, at a real, a really, really important time. And and to be honest, I don't think, you know, we're putting, not to put too fine a point on it, probably the you know, the, the decisions that he made or the decisions that he didn't make during the, the COVID pandemic probably did contribute to the fact that, you know, many, many more people than probably was necessary lost their lives or became, you know, quite seriously ill. Again, as a Canadian, I'm somewhat envious of the depth of the Conservative caucus over this period. One can certainly disagree with various figures, but it strikes me as a pretty strong cabinet and caucus, including people like Michael Gove and Rishi Sunak, but also less well-known ones like Danny Kruger and Jesse Norman. What explains the depth and diversity of British conservative politics in your mind? Well, it's an interesting one. I mean, in terms of diversity, if we just look at ethnic diversity, I mean, it really is quite remarkable when you look around the cabinet that there are so many ethnic minority politicians in there. And, and it's something I think, you know, the Labour Party hasn't yet been able to replicate, although I think if the Labour Party wins the election in um, 2024, it probably will be able to. It's also quite remarkable because, in fact, there aren't that many ethnic minority Conservative MPs. Um, if you, you know, at the top of the Conservative Party, ethnic minorities are quite well represented. But as you go further down the Conservative Party to the ranks of the, you know, the parliamentary caucus, and then into the membership, actually, the Conservative Party isn't particularly diverse. I mean, in terms of its strengths, I mean, it's interesting you say that. I think, you know, many people here would would actually say that the, the, the cabinet has been quite weak in some ways in standing up to prime ministers, for example, particularly during the, the COVID period. But also, I think, you know, some people would argue that Rishi Sunak has appointed people who, he feels he had to appoint simply because, you know, they were kind of powerful within the caucus. And I think Suella Braverman, the, the Home Secretary, who's particularly hardline, is a, is a good example of that. Again, an ethnic minority politician as well. So I'm not sure I would agree that there is a great deal of, of depth of talent within the Conservative Party. Although there are, of course, some, you know, very able individuals. I mean, you've pointed to one Jesse Norman there, who is, you know, quite the philosopher 
actually a novelist now as well. Uh, although, of course, he's in the kind of lower ranks of the, the government rather than the, than the higher ranks. So uh, I think many people would say that the Conservative Party probably needs a period of opposition now in order to refresh itself and probably actually to, to widen the talent pool there, because there are quite a few politicians. Michael Gove is a good example. who have been around a, a very, very long time um, and however talented they might be, probably have you know done their dash now and, and and might need to move on to something else. Uh, and of course, Rishi Sunak might be one of those too. <laughs> he hasn't been around quite as long. Perhaps I'm using a forgiving curve coming from from Canada. Liz Truss' brief prime ministership was marked by her turn back from Johnson's nodding to populist conservatism to a far more orthodox economic conservative agenda. Talk a bit about uh, the extent to which that tension runs through today's Conservative Party. Is it the party of, say, Keith Joseph or Nigel Farage, or is that not a useful way to think about the fault lines in your mind? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think there is an extent to which the Conservative Party hopes that it can run both of those agendas together. So in other words, it can be, if you like, a kind of neoliberal populist party. It doesn't necessarily see any contradistinction between, on the one hand, if you like, a very kind of Thatcherite economic policy. In other words, you know, uh, keep spending as low as possible, keep tax as low as possible, keep the state out of uh, the economy as much as possible on the one hand. And on the other, pitching itself as, you know, the tribune of the, the people versus the elites. Now, I mean, you, you might see um, a kind of logical contradiction there. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think many conservatives believe that there isn't necessarily, you know, that that contradiction. And that, uh, that actually it, it's perfectly possible uh, to to run those two things together. I think the problem for them is that in difficult economic times, the you know the Thatcherite side doesn't really have the appeal to people that that perhaps it might you know when things are going fairly well. And although it might prove possible to you know bring people into the conservative fold on that kind of you know anti woke cultural agenda. Actually, when they're more worried about where, you know, their next meal is coming from, how to keep a roof over their heads, those issues, while not completely unimportant to them, kind of pale into insignificance. And they do want the state to help them rather more than, you know, many conservatives would wish. Uh, And I think obviously, you know, Liz Truss got into trouble because, you know, in some ways, you know, she's quite right to say she went too far, too fast. You know, she offered up a kind of neo- neoliberal um, future for the country at a time when it clearly wasn't appropriate. But I don't think actually her failure uh, has meant that conservatives are put off that Thatcherite agenda. I think, you know, the vast bulk of conservative MPs are, you know, pretty neoliberal, you know, not very centrist on, on the economy. Certainly our research shows that that is the case. And as I say, I, I think they do believe not necessarily because they genuinely are kind of anti-woke politicians, but because they believe that it might play well. Um, think that they can, you know, unite the, the 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 populism with the neoliberalism. Let me ask you a penultimate question: Where does Sunak fit in this conception of neoliberal populism? Oh, I mean, I think you have to say that that, that Rishi Sunak is you know, what I would say a bog standard Thatcherite. <laughs> I mean, he, you know, he has a picture of, you know, one of uh, Margaret Thatcher's chancellors, Nigel Lawson, on his desk, apparently. Uh, he refers uh, time and time again to the fact that he is a Thatcherite. 
uh, you know, with you know, no apparent uh, embarrassment, not that he necessarily should be embarrassed about that. The question, I think, is, you know, how socially conservative is he really? You know, he's a, you know, a graduate of Oxford and Stanford, um, Goldman Sachs, you know, uh, is very much, you know, uh, somebody who's, I think, very familiar with the kind of global stage, you know, and, and all sorts of different cultures. Does he really believe in some of the kind of populist, you know, quasi, you know, xenophobic stuff that some of his um, colleagues come out with? It's difficult to believe that in his heart of hearts he, he really does. But on the other hand, you know, some people will say he's a, you know, socially conservative, you know, religious politician who does actually, you know, believe in, in some of that more sort of trad conservatism, if you like. So I, I would say that actually as a, as you know, someone who is trying to represent both the neoliberal side of conservatism and the populist side of conservatism, in some ways he is the kind of identikit politician. Final question. What's your view about the future of British conservatism? How does it extract itself from its current doldrums? Oh, if only I knew the answer to that. Well, <laughs> I, mean, I think uh, I think the Conservative Party does face a big question if it loses office. I mean, the pattern that we've seen, for example, after 1997, is that it does head off into the ideological hills for a while before it you know, calms down and realises that actually elections in the UK are, to coin the cliche, one in the centre ground, uh, and therefore, you know, has to moderate um, some of its enthusiasm for more radical uh, right policies. I think that that is probably what will happen next time around, partly because of who might win the leadership. You know, if, if it's Suella Braverman or Kemi Badenoch, two of the kind of front runners, they are very much culture warriors they are also, you know, Thatcherite as well. And, and I can see the party heading off in that direction for a while. Now, it could be, of course, that the Labour Party, if it gets into government, messes up. It could be we live in a, you know, a far more populist age. And it could be that the Conservative Party can come back with that kind of agenda. But on the other hand, you know, Britain is becoming more multicultural, more liberal, you know, younger people are, you know, far more socially progressive and to some extent actually, you know, left voting uh, than their older counterparts. Their older counterparts are, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, going to depart the electorate <laughs> fairly, fairly soon, some of them. And, and it's difficult to see that that kind of conservatism has really got a, a future. But on the other hand, it's it will be pushed by the party in the media who still, you know, are very much appealing to the audience that buys their product, uh, and that is, you know, um, elderly uh, voters who have those kinds of conservative views. So that could skew the way that um, conservative politicians think. Uh, but in the end, what tends to happen to the Conservative Party, and this in some ways is the secret of its success, is that it does eventually adapt and at least pretends <laughs> that it is coming to a more kind of centrist view of politics uh, and then you know when labor as it you know eventually must do messes up the 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 voters turn to um, the conservative party once again i think the question is how long will that take well to understand that question and various others i'd encourage listeners to read the conservative party after brexit turmoil and transformation tim bale thank you so much for joining us at hub dialogues thanks a lot really enjoyed it 
Thank you for listening to The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on the issues driving the public conversation. Please share this episode of Hub Dialogues with friends and family and leave us a review wherever you get your audio online. You can also go to our website, www.thehub.ca, to sign up for our free weekly newsletter featuring the best of The Hub's journalism and commentary. I'm Roger Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, The Hub's editor-at-large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronofsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.